ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. Play. This is where the big boys play, huh? The big boys play. This is where the big boys play. All right, well, uh, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Nima Parvini, um, known known on some uh, wrestling forums as Jerry Von Kramer, and uh, this is where the big boys play, which is a which is a, a new show um, that I've uh, uh, thought about doing for a while here. Uh, where we're going to be reviewing some classic NWA. Uh, pay-per-views, uh, and I'm here with Chad. Say hello, Chad. Hey, how's it going? And uh, Chad, you're known as a Soup23 uh, on, on some of the forums there, right? Yeah, I'm known as Soup23 on pretty much all the uh, wrestling forums I post at. Yeah, and uh, you, you've been around a while, because, uh, you know, on the on the well-known kind of smart forums, right? Yeah, uh, I've been on Death Valley Driver, I think, since around 2001. Um, I remember when they did the Death Valley Driver 500s, and uh, that was a time when a lot of the uh, indie boom was going on as far as Combat Zone Wrestling and Ring of Honor was starting up. Uh, So I've been around that forum since then, and then I found ProWrestlingOnly.com in early 2008 and been on there since then. Yeah, and well, as for myself, I mean, I've bounced around a little bit. Um, I struggle to find a forum that I really, uh, I really like posting on. I spent some time on the old WrestleCrap ones, and uh, I went to a WrestleZone, and I pretty much hated those places. You know, where you know, like Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels is the be-all and end-all, and nobody can remember. Uh, <laughs> nobody can even remember like uh, Paul Orndorff, let alone any of these guys that we're <laughs> looking at tonight. Um, and then. Uh, I I I was I actually found uh, Pro Wrestling only through um through Will's podcast, the Goodwill Wrestling. Um, okay. I'm a long time, but I, I listened to the old uh, the old school wrestling podcast that Flair Chop put out, and uh, I I think Goodwill Wrestling came on there, and I was like, who is this guy? Who are these guys? Who really they, they really know their stuff? They're, they're talking about things in real detail, and uh, that led me to Pro Wrestling only. And then obviously through there to DVDR, which I don't I don't really post a DVDR apart from in the AC project there. But uh, so yeah, I mean uh, it's been a real um, enlightenment uh, past couple of years uh, having seen you know some of these uh, some of these people who who've got real knowledge of um, of the territories and uh, you know knowledge that I can only ever dream of really. Um, <clears throat> so uh, just to explain you know uh, the basic idea here. Um, there's a lot of wrestling podcasts out there. Um, plenty of them go through, you know, the Roars and the Smackdowns, which I have absolutely no interest in. But there's a, there's also quite a few which um, look at old-school wrestling pay-per-views. Um, in fact, there's at least three or four um, which kind of specialize in that. Um, but they tend to take as their starting point um, WrestleMania 1, and then they go through the WWF pay-per-views. Um, and there's at least three different ones I, I can think of that start there in 1985 and basically move forward um, through all Vince's, uh, Vince's programs. So, so my idea was, well, why isn't there one for the NWA and the WCW pay-per-views? Um, and what would it be like if, uh, you know, I found somebody who'd be willing to do this with me? Um, 
and uh, yeah, started at Starkid '83 and basically see what life was like um, in the other promotion, especially as I was pretty much a WWF guy growing up, as a, as a lot of people were. Um, and I, I, I think uh, I, I'd seen Super Soup 23 there posting across the across the forums, and I. He just stood out to me as somebody who may be as a, on a similar kind of level of knowledge and experience as I am. Um, because, uh, w w would you agree with that, Chad, that um, I, I guess there are people there who, who know everything, right? Yeah, I would say most of my wrestling experience have been sort of, I'm kind of one of these people where when I get into a certain promotion or style, I want to consume all of that. So, like I said, when I first started going on with the Death Valley Driver, I was really into the indies. So, I've watched every Ring of Honor show to 2006, watched wow. every CCW show, watched every IWA Mid-South show I could get a hold of. But with that, I neglected a ton of other stuff. So, there's a lot of kind of gray areas where I don't have as much knowledge or reference for the wrestling. Yeah. But you did you, you now have an interest in going back and looking at some of this uh some of this AC stuff. Um and you 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 know, some of this stuff uh I am certainly not familiar with. This is uh, the first time I'd seen Starcade eighty three, for example. And uh, I think you said it was the second time that you've seen it, right? Right. I mean, I know I've seen the main matches. I would say the top three matches, I'd at least seen all of those around three different times. But as far as the show start to finish, I think I watched it once, maybe. But uh, the first four or five matches, I had no memory of. So actually writing down notes from them was a new experience. Yeah. So, so just before we get into this, uh, I guess maybe it'd be worth um, just saying a little bit about where we're coming from as wrestling fans. You, you just, um, you just gave us a little bit there that you were into the indies in the kind of early two thousands. Um, how about before that? Like, when did you start watching? And um, yeah, wh where are you from? And how does that, how has that impacted on, on, on you as a wrestling fan? Okay, I was uh, I was born in 1986. Um, I started watching wrestling at a very early age, uh, around three or four. The uh, first memory that I have of wrestling is the Hulk Hogan versus Earthquake feud uh, heading into SummerSlam 1990. Right. Um, I was a big WWF fan uh, in the early 90s. Um, and then gradually kind of drifted towards WCW around 1994. Right, yeah. um, I really connected with the Colonel Robert Parker, uh, <laughs> Flying Brian feud of all things with oh, the right. chicken suit. Yeah. Uh, that was one thing that really tilted it to WCW. And then the NWO was a big part of it. And then uh, I actually stayed on board with WCW throughout the downfall, whereas even, I would say, into late 1999, I would always prefer watching Nitro to Raw, which I think was a little different for most people at that time. Yeah. Um, but since then, like I said, uh, then I started getting into the indies and Puro, and now it's kind of with the uh, 80s projects and the yearbook sets, it's been nice to kind of go back and evaluate some of the stuff from my childhood and beyond and see what holds up, what the main themes were and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it, interesting that you're a big WWF fan coming from Georgia. 
I guess it. Yeah, yeah. I've lived in Georgia almost my whole life, uh, but I, I just think the characters in the WWF really was what drew me to them. I still watch the Power Hour. Yeah. Um, on Saturday mornings, I remember the old TV show Bonanza would go off and Power Hour would start up. Uh, but yeah, I always were uh, more pro WWF in the early years, and then gradually turned to WCW. I guess it just goes to show what a big, uh, you know, how over WWF was by 1990. That you know, even in like a traditional hotbed for uh, WCW or, or, or Crockett. Um, like Georgia, um, that, you know, there'd still be guys who were basically WWF guys down there. Um, for myself, I'm from uh, I'm from the UK, as you may be able to tell from my accent here. Um, and uh, I'm from a little town in Wales. I, I live in London now. Uh, I was born in 1982, so um, I'm, uh, I'm just about to turn 30 soon. <laughs> and... Um, Really, in uh, so in the U.S. as I understand it, you, you guys have always had a lot of cable television, right? Everything's always cable. Well, yeah, I had cable when I was probably five years old. So, so, so in the U.K. Um, up until up until I'd say probably you know the early two thousands, um, there were only ever ever four channels: terrestrial TV. Uh, you, you know, we had BBC One, BBC Two, uh, ITV, and Channel Four. And that that was it as far as uh, your free television went. Um, and if you wanted to have anything else, you really had to get a satellite dish. Um, so we didn't really have cable. Cable never took off in this country at all. It was more um, satellite TV. And the major provider for that was Sky. Um, so if you wanted to watch um, WWF, uh, I think Vince had a contract with Sky very early on. Like even in the kind of late 80s, he already got that um, contract sorted out. And I, I think you had to get Sky TV. And my parents, they didn't have Sky uh, TV. You know, it was really expensive. Um, so, so basically, they they never got it. Um, so when I was a kid, I didn't actually have um, a T. You know, I didn't have WF TV. However, uh, a lot of the kids around the same time, actually, around you know 1990, you know, around that time of that uh, earthquake food feud, I guess, um, the wrestling was pretty over with kids in school, and there was a lot of tape, you know, tapes flying around. So um, I had all of the, you know, WrestleMania 1 to 6, um, and all of those kind of early pay-per-views. Um, I was, you know, I used to watch those over and over. You know, I've probably seen WrestleMania 5 about 100 times. Um, so that was the, that was really what it was, um, at that point. And, um, then WCW, uh, bizarrely, came on, uh, came on one of our terrestrial channels, uh, free at about two o'clock in the morning. It had like a, <laughs> it had like a graveyard, uh, slot. And, um, even though I was only like, you know, nine or ten or something, um, at that time I would set the, uh, video recorder on timer and I, I would time, I would tape, um, I would tape it and try to watch it. And even sometimes, uh, you know, being a bit nuts as I was, I used to stay up. <laughs> Even though I was like ten, I used to stay up till two a.m. Um, watching. Uh, I think it was. It must have been Saturday night that they were showing there. Um, the, you know, it was uh, Jesse and uh, Tony Schiavone with the hosts at that point. Uh, I think Jim Jim Ross was there for a while as well. Um, but what used to happen is that I'd watch the weekly TV, and obviously they hadn't signed a contract to get the pay-per-views. 
so we like you know I'd be watching we'd we'd build to something like a super four and then the next week it would just show the aftermath so we'd never get the show we'd never get the blow-offs um and they also like because obviously nobody at ITV cared about wrestling or about WCW uh, it used to jump around so like you know they'd be showing TV from like early 92 and then it it suddenly jumped to 93 and like all the guys were different so it was very difficult to keep track of it you know they didn't really cater for us very well um and then i guess uh all throughout this time as well like if any of my friends had sky i'd go over and i'd watch uh i'd watch any kind of prime time i could or any of the you know any of the satellite uh wf shows that they used to show and um uh, my mum had this friend called uh, Phyllis Bradford, who was like a 60-year-old woman. Um, and weirdly, like, in the, I don't know if it's the same in, uh, in the States, but in the UK, there's quite a lot of, like, old women who are into wrestling. Um, and my mum had this friend who just happened to be into it, and she lived across the street. So for about a year, I used to go over there. to what I, I watched, like, the entire build of King of the Ring 93, for example, over there. <laughs> um, but then again... We couldn't get the show until it came out on uh, on video, so there'd always be like a massive um, time lag. Uh, yeah, and the, the other thing I remember is that we, there was this one little shop in town, um, and you got to remember we're in you know I'm in a little town in Wales here, um, and it had PWI, so I used to buy that and uh, keep track of all the stuff that was going on. But um, yeah, it. It was pretty difficult, I think, if you were into wrestling and didn't have a satellite dish um, to keep track of what was going on. Um, and then finally, about like 96, 97, my parents did get Sky. So I was on board in time for the Monday Night Wars. And, uh, it used to air on a Friday in the UK. And um, me and my brother would have a tradition. We'd get Chinese and we'd sit down and we'd watch Raw. Um, so we watched pretty much all of that. And um, we did see a, a bit of Nitro as well. But um, that they would do it so that, uh, you know, the first hour of Nitro was on at 8 p.m. And then the, the second hour would overlap with the first hour of Raw. And usually we'd, we'd switch over, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a bit about me. Um, and then basically when I was a student, this was around like 2001, 2002, I had this big student loan. And it was in my third year and I had like about two grand in my bank account um, from this loan. And um, I went a bit crazy and started collecting old VHS tapes. And I must have spent about over a grand on wrestling videos. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd get them. Um, I, I, even, I was in London uh, in university, but I'd get them, uh, I'd get them shipped to my um, parents' house back in Wales. And my mum would ring me up and we were like, another four videos came today. What are you doing? So I've got, um, I basically got every single WF VHS from like, WrestleMania one onwards um, until until about ninety nine, I guess, um, including all of the, like you know your your super tapes, Smack and Whack, um, you know all all, all of that uh, stuff with Mooney and Lord Alfred Hayes on there. <laughs> um, and then I guess uh, like a, like a lot of people around that time, I got into you know uh, you know some of the smart terminology like learning about things on the internet and that was kind of mind-blowing when you first find out about those things i don't know if you can remember but like just learning about terminology like faces and heels and crowd heat and all of this sort of thing um and then uh then i guess um 
around about the time of the, the brand split, I kind of totally, totally lost interest with the current product of uh, of WWE as it became. And um, since about 2004, I've just kind of dedicated all my wrestling time to watching old stuff. So I'm a kind of 100% old school fan, as it were. I, I have no interest in what is going on. Um, I'll probably watch WrestleMania. But uh, like even, for example, uh, the WrestleMania just gone. After that 18-second match, I kind of turned it off. I didn't even bother watching the Rock match. So, you know, that's how much interest I have in, in, in current stuff. So... Um, yeah, so, so, so really a lot of this, uh, for me will be catching up on stuff I was never able to watch, you know, there was no, uh, I don't think mid-Atlantic uh, TV would have ever aired in UK, so, yeah, Sh- shall we, um, shall we make a start, do you think? Yeah, let's go ahead and start, sounds good. Starcade 83, don't miss your chance to be part of these sports of a lifetime. Roddy Piper versus Greg Valentine, first time ever in a color match. A flair for the gold. Ric Flair versus Harley Race for the world heavyweight title. And Jack and Jerry Briscoe versus Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood for the world's tag team title. Starcade 83, Thanksgiving night in the Greensboro Coliseum. A flair for the gold. Don't you miss it. All right, so uh, Starcade 83 then. Uh, obviously, the very first. The very first uh, major pay-per-view show, November 24th, 1983, from Greensboro. And uh, and the hosts were Bob Coddle and Gordon Soley. So, as I understand it, um, obviously Coddle was the, the regular host of Mid-Atlantic TV, and his, usual, his regular partner would have been David Crockett, right? Right, right. Um, Which I re- I really am a I know uh, David Crockett has sort of a bad rep uh, with a lot of people, but I I kind of I kind of appreciate him just basically yeah. on his general excitement. Um, so I don't know what shows he might be announcing on coming up that we go through, but I'm interested to see if I still appreciate just what all he brought to the table as far as an excitement level. Yeah, David Crockett is a lot of fun. I've been enjoying him on uh, on watching some of the old Horseman stuff on uh, on that amazing set that I have, the, the Horseman set. Um, but uh, I, I I did have a look, and apparently uh, David Crockett doesn't really do any of the major shows. I don't know what the deal was there, but maybe he was too busy behind the scenes, or maybe they didn't want to put him on the big shows. Um, but he doesn't, uh, maybe a little bit like the way that Vince isn't really on the first, you know, he doesn't. He makes his pay-per-view debut, uh, Vince McMahon, I think, in 1990. I think probably right. at, probably at SummerSlam 90. Um, where and David Crockett, as far as I can see, doesn't do any of the shows. I think it goes from uh, they 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 obviously brought in Soli here. So um, Gordon Soli wasn't on Mid Atlantic TV. He was really a Florida guy, right? Um, right. And he did in Georgia. Georgia some too. So I think at this time he was with Georgia and with Florida. Um, and as, as I understand it, the this Starcade card, even though Jim Crockett Promotions was putting it on, it was it's not 100% um, a JCP show. So that there are guys from Georgia and Florida throughout this card, and also right. from Puerto Rico and maybe some other territories as well. Um, so it's kind of like the idea of a super card is that it's inter-promotional. You know, there are sep- guys from all across the NWA territories all on the same card. So I'm guessing the thinking of bringing in Soli was to make it feel like a bigger deal, right? 
Yeah, I would think he would be the most recognizable commentator overall that they probably could have gotten for this show. Yeah, and it, I, I think they brought him back for next year. Um, but after 84, I think he's largely gone solely. Right. So we don't see him again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the first match... <laughs> shall we get into this first match? Uh, the Assassins versus Rufus R. Jones and Bugsy McGraw. Yeah, one thing I would just like to mention before that is I always kind of find it interesting that these shows like this one happened on Thanksgiving night. Um, and I know as a kid, once I first started getting into wrestling in the early 90s, Survivor Series uh, always happened on Thanksgiving Eve. Uh, when yeah. I first started getting pay-per-views, it was on Thanksgiving Eve from like Survivor Series 1991 to 1994. So, there's some nostalgia there because I always remember like the show being on and people preparing for Thanksgiving dinner the next day and kind of a lot going on in the house. Um, right. So that's kind of neat. And would people kind of make time to watch the big wrestling show or would it just be on in the background? Um, I mean, my mom and grandparents and whatever didn't pay any attention to it, but most of the shows my dad would watch with me. Right. Um, he was a casual fan. Uh, but, you know, he was basically a fan through my fandom, but uh, he yeah. would watch most of the pay-per-views with me. I, 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 and I think that is um, one of the big differences that we may find going forward here, that uh, really in the in the UK, wrestling is not a thing, you know. It's just not in the... Uh, it's not really part of the culture. We, I mean, if for still even today, if you ask people of a certain generation to name some wrestlers, They'll probably name Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks, you know, the old world. Right. Right. So wrestling had a kind of boom in the late 70s uh, or in the 70s. Uh, Big Daddy was pretty over at that time. Um, but then, like, I think World of Sport died a death um, kind of early by the mid 80s. It was pretty much done. Um, and a lot of people just don't like they just see wrestling as a kind of joke, you know, even back then and even even now, like, it's never really been given any legitimacy. Um, I'm not even sure. Like, I remember uh, a lot of people saying that the death of Randy Savage was given big mainstream co- coverage in the States. Um, I'd be really surprised if it made any news at all here. You know, maybe um, maybe one of the tabloid newspapers would have reported it. But um, So it's kind of like, it's just not in, like, if you're into wrestling in the UK, you're kind of into it on your own. Um, like, uh, I mean... That's the other thing I was going to mention as well. Um, <laughs> probably the peak of wrestling's openness with kids was 1992, um, which is a little bit after the UK, uh, a little bit after the US had its uh, its kind of, I'd say wrestling in the uh, you know the boom era probably peaked in about 87, 88. Would you agree with that? Um, yeah, I mean, I know when I first started watching, there was a couple of people at school that still, you know, were into it, but it was mostly Hogan, Warrior, you sort of picked a side, um, so that was, you know, pretty much the two that most kids would probably know who were, um, and Sting, where I lived at, was also pretty, uh, notable, but other than that, yeah, it was pretty, uh, Pretty limited knowledge. So for us, I mean, I never really remember Hogan being that over. Really, the kids, uh, like, if you go by who they had on their lunchboxes, you know, who they had on their, like, people had, like, rucksacks, WF rucksacks and things. Warrior was definitely very, very over. And so was um, Bret Hart, 
Bret Hart seemed to be like the guy who everyone loved. Um, so the, the peak I'd say was '92. That was the like the time of SummerSlam '92. Like I know a few guys who went to that, um, and everybody like everybody was into wrestling at that time. I mean, like around the time like Money, Money Inc. with the champs and uh, Bret was kind of getting his big singles push. Um, by the time that Luger comes in in '93, it would it was pretty much like it had died a death. Like nobody, like it was the people into wrestling was like me. You know, there was nobody else. It was. I would agree with that here too. Um, by about 1993, 1994, '95, there was I was kind of on an island. That's the only one that was still so, watching. Uh, really, to the NWO. So, so really, like, say in '95, if you wanted to talk about wrestling with somebody, it would usually be in terms of remember, remember the WWF type thing. Right. It was like right. it was something that happened in '91, '92, and that's kind of when it ends. Um, and even now, like most of my friends, they only really remember that kind of particular time period and the characters from then. Um, and I, I mean, I guess some people jumped back on board on the Monday Night Wars. But I get the impression it was kind of a, a new generation of fans. Guys a little bit younger than me. Uh, a lot of people my age wouldn't have jumped back on board at that point. Um, just just from the people I know, you know, like say in my, say of about 300 people in my year, maybe there were like two other guys who watched wrestling. So it was like, you know, it was never that kind of popular. It, it, anyway, get, getting back to um, the Assassins versus Rufus R. Jones and Bugsy McGraw. <laughs> <laughs> we should... Uh, I had never seen uh, Rufus R. Jones or Bugsy McGraw. I've never even heard of these guys until uh, until they cropped up here on this uh, on this um, on this match, and they immediately irritated me um, because they they did a lot of that chucking and jiving kind of yeah. late '70s, early '80s babyface uh, shtick, um, and really like there was a lot of guys who had this as their gimmick, really. Uh, Thunderbolt Patterson, Pork Chop Cash, I remember seeing on the Mid-South set. Um, it's it's basically Dusty Rhodes, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a cheap imitation of Dusty Rhodes' kind of basic offense um, that they kind of do, whether it seems like they move around to sort of try to create an illusion that a lot of action is going on when you really start to analyze it, there's not a whole lot happening. So, so, so for me, there's nothing more alienating than, uh, than a dancing baby face. Um, I could, just can't understand why anybody would cheer for those guys. And it seemed to be that around this time, if you were a baby face um, and you weren't kind of like a technical wrestler like Ricky Steamboat, you did dancing of this nature. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's alienating. I, I can't relate to it at all. It just seems like this is something that seems like it's from a from an era way beyond uh, what I could possibly relate to, you know. Yeah, you still get, even in indie shows that I've been in in the past couple of years, you still get kind of the fiery, most of them are black wrestlers coming out, dancing yeah. around. And sort of the same type of offense that you saw in this match. <laughs> so Not was, much has changed. So what was your, uh, what was your, uh, I should mention here, the Assassins, of course, are uh, Jody Hamilton, who's basically, you know, the Assassins were a long-running team, as I, as I understand, who had many different 
uh, iterations over the over the years. I think they started even in the 60s. Yeah. Um, and I think the guy's name is Tom Tom uh, Renesto. Renesto. Yep. And uh, it, he was like um, he became I uh, from what I picked up like a kind of uh, on-air interviewer or even authority figure uh, for Georgia around this mm-hmm. time. Um, so, like, he was on air, but uh, I, I'm not sure if it was acknowledged that he was one of the original assassins. Um, and then, like, uh, Renesto retired pretty early, pretty early on, and uh, Hamilton had a variety of different partners. And the guy under the mask this time is basically Hercules Hernandez, right? Correct. Yes. So, Early Hercules Hernandez. A pretty, a pretty skinny Hercules Hernandez at this time. Yeah, he looked really. Uh, during the match, they were commenting that he was the powerhouse and whatnot, <laughs> but he certainly did not look as shredded as he would in his WWF days. Yeah, and Jody, Jody Hamilton supporting uh, quite the paunch at this stage in his career. I mean, he, I guess he was pretty old by this point. Yeah, I think Jody was on the way down by this time. And they had uh, Paul Jones in there. The Paul Jones in the corner I saw there. Yeah, Paul Jones. Yeah. Uh, sporting a nice tuxedo, if I might add. Yeah. I mean, people, when the greatest manager's uh, conversation comes up, some people bandy the name of Paul Jones around. Um, I, I've never really seen... I've seen him a few times. I've never really seen anything from him to suggest that he's... Uh, he, he's he's in the, even in that conversation. Have you seen any Paul Jones yourself? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a little bit of him with the Jimmy Valiant long-running uh, multi-year feud that they ended up having. And, I mean, that that's interesting as a, a mid-card kind of entertaining feud, but I would not certainly not put him in the upper echelon with, like, the Heenans or the Jimmy Hart's in Memphis, that kind of ilk. He, he was like a mid-card manager, right? He kind of did the um, – he kind of, like – you know, was probably like a slick or a Mr. Fuji level manager rather than a... Yeah, it seems like, I mean, for instance, as far as Jimmy Hart in Memphis, I mean, there was years of the promotion that were essentially yeah. revolved around his army versus Lawyer. Yeah. And you didn't really get a sense of that here with Paul. So uh, this, I mean, this was a pretty weak opener as far as I, like, I've just written in my notes here, Really shitty baby faces, pinfall out of nowhere. <laughs> I mean, is there anything else to say about this match? Yeah, it was it was pretty awful. I mean, it was about eight minutes of Bugsy and Rufus dancing around, gaining the advantage. Uh, you had a face in peril section for about thirty seconds, and then the hot tag, and then the pinfall for the assassins out of nowhere, and uh, that was it. One thing I found that was weird was Gordon solely kept bringing up that Bugsy had a business administration degree, (laughs) um, which I thought was very bizarre uh, that he kind of went with that as his main tagline. I don't know how familiar he was with Bugsy, but... He also seemed to be obsessed with the size difference between the two assassins. Like, every single time Hercules was in the ring, he'd be talking about how the other assassin was bigger. Yeah, uh, uh, to me, uh, I, th- I think just overall the uh, the commentary I think settled down, but I don't know if they were sort of settling in, or they, even if they were familiar with each other here, or kind of getting a gauge of the show. But it was kind of 
herky jerky in this match. I thought. I th- I actually thought for the first half of the card that Soli was really kind of like he seemed like a guy who's awkward, like just wasn't comfortable being on TV. Like he kept, you know, and obviously this is Gordon Soli. He, he was probably like in his third decade as a commentator by this point. But he like did a lot of umming and ahhing, and like he said, uh, you know, he he said um a lot, like like he was trying to think of what to say. I understand. Uh, went on down to Winston Salem uh, to pick us up. Of course, on the uh, closed circuit uh, TV broadcast, uh, and a great opportunity for everybody. Uh, right. Which it which it was a little bit jarring. It was kind of like, what's going on here? It seemed like it wasn't smooth at all. Um, yeah. Uh, he mispronounced Tony Schiavone's yeah, name, which he, I thought was humorous. He called him Schiavone. Yeah, or Sh- I appreciated that. Sh- he called him Schiavone, didn't he? He was Schiavone a lot of the time. We'll be also hearing tonight from uh, Barbara Clary and uh, Tony Schiavone. Yeah. Um, I should just mention here that if you can picture, I mean, Bugsy McGraw was just this fat, out of shape guy, bald, kind of looked a tiny bit like a, like a even fatter version of Barzukov, maybe someone like that. Like he, he really didn't look very good at all. Um, yeah, the only time I've seen Bugsy before this was there was a couple of matches of him in Texas, uh, where he faced Checkmate and the Magic Dragon, and in those matches he mixed in decent wrestling and some actually. Pretty good comedy spots, I thought, but uh, we had none of that here. No, no, no. I, I, I did a little bit of reading about him, and he, um, he had a, like a. He used to be a footballer, right? Yeah, yeah. Gordon kept uh, mentioning that too. He, he didn't even really know which college he went at, though. <laughs> I think he ended up going with Indiana, but he seemed unsure. If, if Soli doesn't know what where you graduated, um, that's, that's probably suggesting that you're not that over, I guess, but. First kind of major pay-per-view match in history. This is uh this is pretty pretty shoddy stuff, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so so then we get um uh, moving past that match we get uh we got our first glimpse of Tony Schiavone. He's pretty young here. Uh he must be kind of like he couldn't be too much older than 23 or 24 if I had to guess. Um and I've just uh, written seems like a natural, much more comfortable on camera than either Coddle or Soli. Um would you agree with that? <laughs> Yeah, I thought Tony actually did a really good job with the uh, backstage interviews here. And actually, Barbara Clary, which I think <laughs> we might get to at some point in time, but I've, I'd never heard of her. I was expecting kind of a Susan St. James WrestleMania two type situation, but uh, she held it together better than I thought yeah, she, she was, would. I mean, she spent most of the show going around asking various fans who they think would win the main event. Yeah, it it wasn't, they definitely limited her to where she didn't have to give any deep-thoughted analysis. Yeah. Uh, but she did seem generally enthused about the show she was at. That, that was one of the things that did strike me about this show. It's a lot of interviews, a lot of uh, non-match stuff, which really surprised me because um, having watched a lot of kind of later, you know, w, early kind of uh, WCW stuff, they tend not to have any interviews at all. It just kind of like you know the Turner the Turner videos are just kind of match match match, uh, very few interviews. And here I'd say maybe half the total running time was backstage stuff. Yeah, I didn't give a count, but I would say there was probably no less than five Ric Flair interviews throughout the entire show. It got uh, pretty redundant by the end of it. 
Yeah, and th- they really gave that main event some serious hype here. They kept on going yeah, back between the they, locker rooms of Grace and Flair. Yeah, they definitely made it seem like a uh, a huge event and match. So, <clears throat> so after we get this little bit of Shivani, we we go to our second match, another tag match, which is a uh, Johnny V jo- Johnny Weaver and Scott McGee uh, versus Kevin Sullivan and Mark Lewin. Uh, as I understand it, I think uh, Sullivan and Lewin would have been from Florida, right? I know Sullivan right. had a big Florida run around this time. Um, had you seen any of these guys before? Um, I'd, I'd never seen McGee or Weaver uh, before that I could remember. My experience with Lewin was very limited, just a handful of matches. And actually, Sullivan, one of the notes I had was, I mean, Sullivan, I think, if you're a pretty hardcore-type wrestling fan, Kevin yeah. Sullivan is definitely someone that would pop up a lot in the 80s. And yeah. I just, I don't know if it's a lack of footage or what, but it kind of striked me that of all the big names, I may have seen the least amount of footage from him. I mean, I've seen a lot of his... Varsity Club stuff, and then of course in the '90s saw his whole run as the Cast Master and whatnot. But in his '80s, I know his Florida Devil worshiping footage is extremely limited, and it just doesn't seem like there's a ton out there for somebody that was a main event player in some territories. He wasn't that weird here. I was expecting Sullivan maybe to be more kind of strange. I mean, Soli mentioned at one point that he he suspected of being a druid. Um, yeah, and then he and then he said he wouldn't be surprised if he was, which I thought was <laughs> a humorous line. Yeah, and uh, it, it, Sully also mentioned as this uh, uh, as this um, show started out that um, this uh, this broadcast is prohibited. Uh, any part of this uh, show is prohibited without uh, permission of uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, which uh, made me chuckle a little bit um, in retrospect. Um, right, I. Johnny Weaver, I believe, became uh, kind of like an, a sort of interviewer a l- little bit later on. I'd, I've seen him. Um, I've seen him on some of the '85 uh, stuff, Horseman stuff, as a kind of on-screen interviewer on uh, one of those Mid-Atlantic shows. So he must be really near the end of his in-ring career here. Um, but I thought he looked really good in this in this match. Yeah, I thought this uh, this match. I thought was really. Uh, chugging along pretty good. Uh, I I made a note that McGee in the early goings he did a nice escape from an arm bar where he kind of did an up and over on um I think it was Lewin to yeah. reverse it. It was sort of a British looking counter, and I thought that was very well done. Both of the uh, face and peril segments were good, but then we sort of had a real abrupt ending again, which kind of brought the match down a notch. Yeah, I actually thought Lewin's offense was a bit, a little bit lacking during the heat segment there. A bit so kind of, and then a really, really lame finish. Kind of, uh, I guess this was a time before, um, before kind of finishes ended every match. Like you know, a match can end with an elbow drop or a slam, or you know, somebody just giving a stomp and then trying going for a pin attempt. Uh, yeah, that's gonna be that's something that we will have to get in. I guess get used to because here you didn't even get a hot tag. They just 
they were cranking on the arm, and then Sullivan came off with a knee drop from the top, and then I sort of had to rewind it to make sure that was it because it was so shocking that, you know, that was it. Yeah, I I actually thought it made this seem really lame. Like, I, I mean, I know I know it's a different mindset, um, but it's very difficult after years of being programmed to expect a big finish on, for a pay-per-view match to then just, you know, um, readjust yourself for this pin out of the blue, which I, um, I suppose the more important, uh, the more kind of uh, exciting stuff happened after the match finished. There was a pretty brutal beatdown here. Um, yeah. So it, they have a, what do they have? Is it like a spike, do they say? It, it looked like a kind of spike looking thing, but you couldn't, one, one thing I'll say is, I don't know if it's the version the version of the tape that I watched for this was the 24/7 version. Yeah, me too, yeah. And and the uh, the arena looked very dark. Yeah, very dark. Um, so it was very tough in this match and in the next match, the Abdullah match. It was very tough to kind of see exactly what type of weapons or whatever they were using uh to attack, but yeah, McGee, he got some good blood. They kept talking about uh, Angelo Moscow, I guess, ran down and he got hit in the arm, which they kept emphasizing. But uh, to me, McGee looked like he took the worst of it. Yeah, he looked really, uh, <clears throat> he was a bloody, he had the crimson mask there at the end. Uh, and he was, um, yeah, I, I just written that it was a really brutalist uh, beatdown compared to the kind of very pedestrian stuff we've seen. Uh, I right. think the, the, the show kind of has its first glimpse of being something more than, uh, than a, you know, anything more than boring, I, I, I guess. Um, right. Then we're taken uh, from the uh, from this to, to our first look at Harley Race. So he gives a, um, he gives a promo here. And uh, Race is sporting the, um, the moustache that goes into a beard. So he doesn't have like the goatee part, he just has a moustache that goes up to his sideburns. Um, and I've written a note here that he looks a bit like the fake Mad Hatter out of the Batman comics. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, made, I made a note of it. His moustache was glorious here, um, where essentially his sideburns and his moustache connect. Uh, it's, it's really good. And I really love this interview where he kind of talks about how he's been talking to you know, the other heels around him, Slater and Orton and all that, and he knows all of Flair's weaknesses, which I thought was really smart because him being the NWA champion, he would be touring uh, and making stops in all the different territories, overseas and what have you. So he would not be around to kind of get the day-in, day-out feel of what was going on. So I really enjoyed this interview. Yeah, it was. Uh, he was kind of like it, throughout the show. He was kind of quite subdued. He never shouted. He was a very quiet. Like uh, in fact, both Flair and Race were very quiet in these interviews. Uh, we, yeah, real low key. Yeah, we still hadn't got into. I guess they still hadn't got into that kind of mid eighties shouty style um, that we we're also used to. Uh, but it's quite interesting. It makes it really it does seem like a psychological bat- battle even beforehand. And uh, I guess we can get more into the angle going into the main event uh, a little bit a little bit later. Um, sure. But yeah, this was a this was an interesting first look at race, and he was touring at this time. Um, but as I understand it, he wasn't with Mid Atlantic. He was with um, he kind of uh, always wrestles out of St. Louis, right? 
out of the kind of the mid state what what's that territory called central states the central states kind of kansas yeah. kansas is it or just saint yeah Louis. kansas city yeah that's he's, he kind of had a stake in that territory uh which i haven't watched i know most people uh that have watched a ton of territory stuff from the 80s say that is Absolutely, pretty much the worst of all the major ones it, it, it uh, looks, that we have footage on. It looks very boring, that's, that yeah. central state yeah, territory. Yeah, I, I can see it very, um, I mean, just with all the other stuff going on and some of the other characters. I mean, I think I think race is good in this median as like yeah. a low-key, uh, burly champion figure, but yeah. I would not want to see, you know, 20 of them in a promotion. Yeah, and um, I think there was a little bit of backstage wrangling over the NWA title at this time. I, I think there's a, this whole show is kind of a big power play on Crockett's part to get the belt onto Flair and win control of the NWA belt, as far as I understand it. Um, okay. So, so d- moving on then, we, we have uh, our first look here at uh, Abdullah the Butcher, and he's taking on Carlos Colon. Um, and I wondered if this match was no DQ, but apparently not. This is a, this is a standard, just a normal match. Um, and these two have been feuding in Puerto Rico for some time, uh, going into this. Um, a little bit strange, I thought, to have this show on this card. Uh, obviously, this was a massive deal in Puerto Rico, but I wonder if anybody in Greensboro really gave a shit. Yeah, they kept uh, they kept talking about like some fans from Puerto Rico joining in, which. I mean, I have no idea if they would have the ability to watch this show. Um, I kind of doubt it. But, uh, yeah, this seemed like a kind of obscure match. Um, it was very short, bloody, usual hack and slash style that Abdullah brings. Um, not a lot going on. Uh, I have been to Abdullah's restaurant here in Atlanta. I live about 30 minutes from Atlanta. Um, so I've been to Abdullah's restaurant, and that's Did you see that was, it's a lot better in this match. I'll say that the food is. Now I've got a I've got a note about. Did you actually see Abdullah there? By the way, I did not see. I know most of the time they say he's sort of sitting there, kind of. I guess he's notorious for trying to sell and gimmicks and whatnot. Uh, but he was not there when I went there. I went there for lunch. Now, I know Carlos uh, Colon is a, considered a big star, uh, probably a one-territory star, but he was massive in Puerto Rico, right? Kind of like... The- yeah, I, I would say of uh, what I was talking about earlier with my blind spots in wrestling, Puerto Rico is really one of the biggest ones. I have not seen uh, hardly any Puerto Rico footage, but I know he was a uh, pretty much a, a huge star down there. Let, let's face it, though. Why would you have ever seen Puerto Rico TV? Like that's 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 one of those things that I'm not sure if there's any point in going. Like, was there anything happen? I, I mean, I wonder if the TV showcasing Abdullah versus Carlos Colon was is even worth going back to see. Yeah, I don't know if some of this stuff will pop up when they do the uh, territory set of the yeah. best of the '80s at Death Valley Driver, but uh, that will be interesting. But yeah, I have no uh, desire to <laughs> get a whole season set or whatnot. I, I don't want to be on that committee. I tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, I, I, a couple of little notes I put here. I put the Soli and Soli and Cordell are almost too straight laced during this match. They're kind of like they're so stiff. They're so kind of um. 
you know, straight down the line. I, I mean, I'm I'm someone who's used to listening to Jesse Ventura and Gorilla Monsoon bickering, or or uh, or even Vince and Jesse, or or uh, Monsoon and uh, and Heenan, and and this is like as far away from that as you can get uh, with these two, you know, old old guys, um, just very sensibly talking about um, Abdullah versus Carlos Colon here. Um, how did you find that? Like, would you agree that they're they're almost too sensible, you know, in a way? Yeah, they were very uh, definitely straight laced throughout the uh, the show. Even and we get to the main events, they were not very animated, or you, you certainly didn't see any disagreement or bickering between the two. Um, they both just sort of called it straight. It can be a little dry, but. I was also interested in the was Coddle meant to be the color man here, or were they both play-by-play guys? I I got the sense that Coddle was supposed to be the color man, um, but it kind of felt like when Jim Ross uh, and Tony Schiavone was the color guy. Yeah. Uh, sort of felt like kind of that, where you really had two play-by-play guys, and somebody just sort of had to be forced and then, into I, more of a color role. And then in the interview seg- segments, it was usually Coddle asking the questions and solely giving analysis as well, which is... Yeah, bit- that was weird, yes. Um, anyway, we, we get a little bit more color during this match. Um, I think a um, couple of blade jobs here. Yeah, it's just way too short to be meaningful. This. Yeah, four minutes. Uh, Hugo Savannah just runs down to interfere, um, which I don't think I've ever seen him anywhere else besides behind the Spanish announce team booth in WWL. Um, pretty much a nothing match. Yeah, and I, I, considering this was meant to be such a big feud, probably does it like probably deserve more. But then I wonder if this was even the right crowd to have this match in front of. Yeah, yeah, I think a different setting, probably. So that, then we were taken backstage again, and uh, Angelo Mosca is angry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what did you think of this promo? Oh, oh, Angela, this was uh, this was pretty bad. Just basically him stating that even though they attacked his arm, he was still going referee the tag title match tonight, which I don't know why that would be such a great feat, but, uh... And, and this Angelo Mosca was also a, a football guy beforehand, before he was a wrestler. Um, right. They seem to do quite a lot of this. I think it was a standard, you know, well-worn path. So after the pro football career is over, they make the transition to be a wrestler. Uh, and, uh, was he, would you say, is he Italian? Did he have a quite an Italian uh, I, I'm not, I would guess that, but I'm not positive. Um, and uh, McGee is a mess here. He's uh, yeah, yeah, he looked awful. So then we have an, uh, another interview with a couple of random female fans who both think that Ric Flair is going to win. Um, and then we have our first real kind of, uh, I'd say, big match uh, on the card. Which had you know a real build, which is um, uh, Bob Orton, Dick Slater versus Wahoo McDaniel and Mark Youngblood, and there's a bit of previous here. Um, Orton and Slater are big um, allies of Harley Race, and Harley Race had put up a uh, a bounty on Ric Flair's head for 25 grand, um, which was taken up by Orton and Slater, and they they basically did a job on him. They gave him a 
uh, assisted pile driver, um, which uh, injured his neck. Uh, while Wilder McDaniel, big 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 mates of Ric Flair, um, kind of made a save, I think, when they tried to attack him again, like while Flair was recovering. Um, and I guess Mark Youngblood, it, Mark uh, Youngblood, as another Native American, is just you know naturally tags with 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 Wahoo, um, and uh, so that that's kind of uh, that's kind of the background of this. Um, and going into the match, we Tommy Miller, who is the announcer, he um, he tries to introduce Dusty Roll, uh, Dusty Rhodes, but the mic fails um, d- while he's doing the announcing. Then Soli and Coddle think that Dusty Rose is going to come out anyway, and he doesn't turn up. <laughs> that was awkward, where uh, they sort of had a pause, introduced him, we got a pop from the crowd, and then after about 30 seconds, he just started introducing the team. Yeah, this was a, quite a clusterfuck there, and it just, <laughs> um, it, it just I guess, teething problems. Uh, nobody put on an event of this magnitude before. Um, Although I say that this was about sixteen thousand people, there there'd been super shows before this, right? This is just the first one that kind of went out. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen the final conflict, which has the uh, the Canerdle Slaughter uh, cage match, um, which I, I think it was in the summer of '83. That's the one where they supposedly were turning away thousands of fans at the door and a lot of people think that was sort of like a precursor to doing this Starcade show. Um so that was kind of the the one that comes right off the top of my head as a show of that magnitude. And then like the uh in World Class they had the Star Wars shows on Christmas right? night, nineteen eighty two. Yeah. With the flair carry cage match, and uh, but none of those were closed circuited, so so the, the, that's what makes this the, the real. And I'm guessing those are old WF MSG shows, you know, Bruno, yeah. Bruno Sammartino versus Heel of the Day. Uh, they they would have probably got gates as big as this as well, right? Right, yeah, I would assume so, absolutely. And they went out on that MSG network, um, but yeah, I, I guess this is still considered the first. First show where people could pay to watch this um, on on a big screen. That's what. Yeah, and I think the branding too is very good. And that I mean, you knew it was Starcade '83, um, so that was nice. It just wasn't wrestling on Thanksgiving night. It was Starcade, uh, so I think that was very smart. So uh, I've written here that this match, uh, Wahoo and Wahoo and Youngblood versus uh, Orton and Slater is the first decent wrestling we see on this show. Um, the heels look exceptional in this match. Um, Orton gives us three different variants of cool backbreakers. He does one where he kind of like, like does a gorilla press and turns it into a backbreaker. Um, yeah, that then, was great. Then he does a standard backbreaker, and then later on he does a backbreaker kind of on the side onto the steel rails. Um, and then we see uh, from Slater a gut wrench souple. <laughs> Um, as as, as Soli calls it, um, yeah, the, the heels just look really good here. They look like great kind of technical wrestlers. Yeah, Slater and Orton, I think, make a really good team. Uh, they both are able to mix up a lot of styles well. Oahu is somebody that you know I've just completely ignored in my yeah. childhood and thought he was just sort of one of those brawling 
uh, Indian wrestlers that was basically a gimmick. But the more you watch of him, the more he's grown on me as a great brawler, uh, wrestler, able to structure a match. Uh, he wasn't in this match as much as I would have liked, uh, but I thought Youngblood did a pretty good job when uh, the taking the offense yeah, he was, from Slater he, and Orton. He was the face of peril here and uh, uh, while he was the hot tag. And uh, yeah, right. Youngblood looked really good. He was pretty good at selling there. And um, Slater was kind of in his, uh, still in his Terry Funk phase here. He was basically doing a lot of funk uh, spots, you know, the the um, the Texas fists and, uh, you know, that barking dog thing that funk does. Uh, yeah, there was kind of a lot of sort of delayed selling, too, where he was staggering as he got hit and whatnot. I've seen Slater really work some great technical matches uh, versus Jumbo Saruto on the All Japan set. Yes, he's pretty good at uh, this, this was not that, but I thought he was effective here also. Of course, there's going to be a lot of Wahoo on the AWA set. Uh, yeah, that's so. one of the things I'm looking forward to. Well, one thing I just mentioned about Wahoo McDowell, I've mentioned this many times before, but whenever, like, even as late as, like, 86, whenever Flair does his uh, big promo where he's listing all the big faces in the company and all the people he's taken on in his career, he always, always makes a point of mentioning Wahoo McDaniel. Um, yeah. And it's one of those things that always struck me as, like, why is he he's still mentioning Wahoo in, like, 87? What's going on? Um, <laughs> but uh, apparently, like... Uh, Flair has a huge amount of respect for Wahoo, and there's a specific reason why he keeps on making sure he acknowledges that. Um, like I, I think he put him over a few times when he was when he was younger. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think this was easily the best match uh, so far. Um, yeah, the f- the finish was a little weird. Uh, young blood kind of botched. A drop kick. I don't know if Slater was supposed to hold on to Orton or exactly what happened, but that looked a little awkward. And then the end, uh, where Orton suplexes him and Wahoo, I, I think, was supposed to be held by Slater instead of breaking up the pin, but yeah, was he was kind of there right at the three count, so it was a little confusing. It's, but it's uh, the actual su- structure of the match was really good. It's actually a superplex from Orton. Uh, yeah, yeah. Number, which is a pretty high spot. Uh, Soli says you don't get up from that. <laughs> yeah, it definitely did not feel like a cheap finish um, with the superplex. Uh, what, what, one of the notes I've made uh, doing this match is that um, Wahoo, Wahoo's offense, uh, offense is really, really uh, baby. What I describe as baby face offense. Chops, inverted atomic drop, body slam, atomic drop. You know, those are those are face moves. Like no yeah. no heels do those moves. <laughs> yeah, Orton's selling on the atomic drop was uh, Rick Rude levels. <laughs> uh, great too. He really was looked in pain. So then after the match, we have uh, we have a great kind of post match beatdown here. Um, you can tell Dusty was booking this show because uh, every single match has a has a post match. Every beatdown. single match. <laughs> <laughs> And um, there's a, there's a little bit where uh, I think Slater considers coming off the top to uh, to kind of hit Wahoo's arm, and then he for whatever reason doesn't do it, and then Orton yeah. does, Orton does the, exactly the same thing and actually hits it. So I, do they actually break Wahoo's arm here? I, th- I think this, in the story they this is the breaking of Wahoo's arm. Oh, okay. So 
we, we that was a pretty good match, and we go um, back to Tony Schiavone, <laughs> um, <laughs> and we have an interview with Flair, um, Steamboat, and uh, and Jay Youngblood here, um, Mark Youngblood's older brother, and uh, Flair is in his kind of serious, downbeat uh, mood here. Um, and I had a great thing once. I can't remember who said it, but uh, that um, there's really two different Ric Flairs. There's the Carolina Ric Flair and the Minnesota Ric Flair, and this is definitely Minnesota Flair, right? Yeah, this was. Um, I mean, I, I, one thing that I really love about Flair is he can do these sort of downplayed, uh, mostly when he's a babyface promos and they're very effective and they really get you invested in the match and totally believable and in the same sense he can do the jacket flying running around in his underwear you know pitching a fit on the worldwide set promos uh and they're equally as effective and believable so that's that's really impressive that he can go from you know two extremes and both of them can be so well done. Yeah, and Steamboat and uh, and Youngblood also kind of have the same. They're in the same mode here. Nobody shouts. They're all kind of serious. Um, I, I guess modest. You know, nobody's really talking themselves up. Nobody's saying they're the greatest thing on earth. They're all just kind of like good, honest sportsmen who are looking forward to their matches. <laughs> right. Um, then we take him to Dusty Roads again. Oh my God, <laughs> this guy can't catch a break. <laughs> and he has mic problems again. <laughs> <laughs> this was very bizarre because you had him sort of, we were getting essentially every fifth word that he was saying. Uh, Gordon just started talking completely over that. Yeah. Um, so this was a mess. Yeah, and um, a solely... <laughs> A solely summary of a of a dusty promo is uh, it doesn't really give you uh, any any kind of uh, the same effect there. And yeah, it's quite funny because Dusty's really animated, and you can't hear a word he says. Oh yeah, I mean Dusty is going crazy. Uh, Gordon informs us that he's challenging the winner of the cage match. How he knows that, I have no idea based on what we've heard. But uh, yeah, I mean Dusty's giving his typical fired up promo and. All you hear is Gordon kind of monotonely talking about it, uh, which is pretty humorous. Uh, considering this is such a big night for Dusty, he must have been pissed here. He must have, like, I bet you when when that camera went away, he pulled a massive hissy fit. <laughs> 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 because, uh, probably was not a, not a happy camera. I mean, well, I mean, one thing, they do have some audio problems, but one thing I will say is some of the video uh you know, it it was dark in the arena, but some of the camera angles, like yeah. when they did the from the ceiling looking down on the ring camera angle, That's I thought fabulous. that was fabulous. Yeah, especially during the main event. I, I, had, yeah. I had the note about that as well. You, you see an Irish whip into the corner and it looks incredible from that overhead camera. They should, yeah, use, that they, they should use that more, you know. They should bring that back, probably. Absolutely. So, I mean, it kind of, you had a mix of good and bad as far as the production side of things. Um. One thing about Dusty Rose, like he's always accused of, you know, putting himself over as a booker and stuff. He could have very easily given himself a match on this show, and he didn't, which is interesting. Yeah, that's one thing I wrote a note about, too, that I was surprised that he did not, I don't know if he was legitly hurt or what the deal was. 
Yeah, I, I'd have thought maybe, um, like, I mean, Dusty could have had a... Ma- it, what, one thing I'm not aware of is, uh, what was Dusty's relationship with Flair and with Race like at this time? Because obviously, like, he was touted as the big, kind of, like, number two contender behind Flair. Um, but I wasn't aware of, like, um, you know, if there was any ongoing storylines with those guys at this time. Because, like, I mean, face Dusty and face Flair, I don't know what kind of relationship they'd have. He definitely, yeah. he definitely wasn't, like, a big friend of theirs, like uh, Steamboat or, you know, Steamboat was obviously the big buddy here. Not Right. Everybody is... It's a big thrill to be in such a, a great... Three of Flair for the goal, Rick Flair. Great in the left. We're having a little bit of audio problems here. Dusty Rhodes. Still Dusty. Explaining how he feels about being here tonight. And obviously he is here to challenge the winner of this World Heavyweight Championship match. Dusty Rhodes, two times World Heavyweight Champion, the American Dream. And uh, he is with Barbara Clary. Unfortunately, we are experiencing a bit of audio problems. We'll try and get this interview back uh, for you a little bit later on. Wrestling history to be made. And again, Dusty Rhodes said it all, though. Wrestling history is being made here tonight at the Greensboro Coliseum. No question about that. One of you, Rick. Flair. Flair for the... Well, if you can read his lips, you can tell what he's saying. Go book it back up to the bottom. He's talking about having such a good time, Gordon. He said he's going to go back up. He's going to get in there. But he's going to have to work a lot harder afterwards because he's got Dusty Rhodes to deal with. Now we're going into, I think the next match was uh, Charlie Brown from Out of Town <laughs> versus Great Kabuki with Gary Hart. Yeah. Um, title versus mask match. Uh, and Charlie Brown is basically Jimmy Valiant under a mask. Uh, I'm guessing... Half a mask. <laughs> the beard still hanging out. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing without uh, without even needing to look this up, he'd lost some sort of loser-lose title match and uh, had come back as Charlie Brown. Blatantly. I, I would assume. Yeah, and this was a big angle that they did over and over again. I know a junkyard dog wrestled Stagger Lee, and it was kind of like a standard kind of cliche of uh, territory yeah. you were booking. Uh, yeah, I would say Bob Armstrong as the bullet <laughs> yeah. is uh, the actually probably the best example of that everything else has kind of been uh pretty forgettable so i've written here that uh, the great kabuki um seems to be a prototype for the great muta uh, if you just look at him with the, he's got the mist he's got the the mask um and he's got the face paint um and then charlie brown gives us uh more shucking and jiving more babyface early 80s bullshit um <laughs> And Soli, as we're going into the match, mentions Bill Apter from PWI. Right, is in yeah. attendance. Um, so we get an extended shine sequence at the start, uh, or Charlie Brown for the first six to eight minutes. Um, terrible offense. He's just nothing oh. here. This this was bad. <laughs> this this I don't I don't know if I would put the opener. Or, uh, or this match is the worst one of the night, but uh, it's it's pretty stiff competition. Brown puts a sleeper on uh, Great Kabuki, 
and solely tells us that the sleeper originated in the Orient. Interestingly enough, of course, the sleeper hold originated in the Orient. (laughs) (laughs) And he keeps on going on about the irony of this hole that came out from the Far East being put on the uh, Kabuki. Um, Then Coddle hypes Kabuki's martial arts knowledge. It would be odd indeed and uh, almost ironic justice if Charlie Brown could defeat him with that sleeper hold because that hold originated uh, in the Far East. And speaking of the Far East, as many of the wrestlers are, but Kabuki possesses probably more knowledge of the of the martial arts garden than any wrestler in the ring today. No question about it. We just saw an example of that, a savant-like blow to the chest, and then uh, Kabuki catches him with a claw hold like to the head. He's got the claw hold to the head, clamping down on uh, both temples. And then Kabuki demonstrates it by putting on the claw, the claw hold. Um, oh. And I've written here, this, this is this is a crap hold. Um, hold on, give me give me one second here. I have to I have to pause this. Hold on. All right, I'm back. Uh, sorry, my 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 wife has just returned. So um, yeah, um, I I had to explain to her that I'm recording a wrestling podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so yeah, where were we? The, the Claire, uh, the, the claw hold. Um, and I've just written like this is just the worst wrestling hold ever. Uh, somebody puts their of all the parts of the human body that um, can withstand pressure the skull has got to be right at the top of that I mean what, what what is this meant to do I don't understand what this whole like yeah I mean Kabuki and the stuff I've seen from Japan um, in the later 80s and early 90s he was very good as a kind of grizzled veteran tough guy role but in the states with what i've seen in this match and what i've seen in texas it's just a ton of nerve holds claw holds rest holds where he he literally just has his hand on somebody's face or shoulder and they're just laying there for you know this this match was 10 minutes and that was two minutes of the match i don't understand how it's meant to hurt like what? Yeah, it's it's awful. I even so. tried doing it to myself to see what it's meant to do. <laughs> it doesn't make. So anyway, we we get a false hope spot from uh, from uh, uh, Charlie Brown here. He starts to make a comeback, and then Kabuki goes back to the claw, and uh, Jesus Christ! Uh, and then the twenty four seven version fast forwards here. It, so it, I mean, this claw hole is so boring that they fast forward through it. Um, and we we get to our we get to our finish, um, which is basically an elbow drop, uh, by Brown, and so yeah. solely wrongly calls that uh, he's won the TV title, like he says, uh, he's won the TV title here, but then they don't know because um, they ha- he has to win it in the first fifteen minutes, um, which is all a little bit confusing, um, yeah, and he suddenly keeps on talking about. Um, how this is a couple of hundred thousand pounds less to Gary Hart. So it's a lot of money, the TV title. Right. I, I mean, I, I, I like the instance of the match just doesn't end at the 15-minute time limit or whatever, but that's only when the title is up for grabs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was really confusing when the match ended and they couldn't tell you one way or the other whether he'd won or not. Yeah, they should have made an announcement there and then, I think. Absolutely. Um, this was a terrible match. Yeah, this was awful. Worst so. night of the match. <laughs> I, I, I would even take the uh, Bugsy McGraw stuff. Yeah, I, I, 
I, I tend to agree because at least that had a like I said a lot of motion um, yeah. with the juking and jiving. Maybe not as much action, but this a lot of this was literally just laying around in a hole. So I'm wondering it was awful. here how how far this kind of tradition of Japanese wrestlers really dogging it in the in the U.S. matches like. Did Kabuki originate this? Because I, I know Muta is notorious for just really, not, really putting on terrible matches. And Yeah, that'll be something that'll be interesting as we go through to see, you know, whether... I don't know if... I mean, because Muta, I know, had a some pretty bad uh, American matches, but yeah. it was kind of in a time frame where he was also having pretty bad Japanese matches. Um, So, you know, like his 1989 work, which I know I appreciated the first time I watched it. It'll be interesting to see if I think that holds up or whatnot. Well, anyway, I I hate this version of the claw. I think Kerry Von Eric's claw is a little bit lower down and it it attacks the face, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, Kerry's claw... He really does an effective job of one putting the other arm that he's not clenching the claw in. He puts that on his wrist to kind of give a sense of control and power. And then it does actually look like he's sort of trying to squeeze your face. Yeah. Um, so it, it does look certainly a lot more effective than this. And, you know, part of that, too, is the way the person's selling the hold, which uh, Charlie Brown in this match, that essentially meant kind of laying there and kicking his leg every once in a while. So that didn't help any matters. But Kerry certainly uh, clenches the crawl better than what we saw here. So, yeah, awful. Um then we're treated to um, a little interview spot here with Dude Walker. I have no idea who this guy is at all. Yeah, I have no idea. A, a local so. celebrity of some kind. Is it all I could... Uh, maybe he was like a radio DJ. Yeah, it sounded, seemed like he was a DJ because he talked about a radio station. Um, but yeah, not much here. Yep. So, good idea at the time. Probably doesn't... Uh, local celebrity who doesn't... You know, probably nobody knows who he is now. Um, <laughs> and then... There's a uh, we get kind of um, more analysis from Soli, who makes Flair the fla- Flair the favor for the uh, for the main event, um, but he says don't underestimate race. Um, right. And then we have more Shaboni with Race Orton and Slater, um, and this is where Race really goes into some psychology here. He reminds Flair of the pile driver, um, and that he says that his focus for the match is going to be the neck. That's my whole game plan tonight, he says, which is really quite good. Uh, you don't hear people talking like that um, often, where they say, you know, I'm going to go after your neck uh, in such a blatant way. So I enjoyed that. Right. I enjoyed that. Program. I enjoyed that too. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so then, uh, finally, we get Dusty Rhodes with a working microphone. Um, <clears throat> interesting promo here. He he challenges the winner uh, of the match. Uh, and then he calls Harley Race a folk hero, and he says, um, he seems to me to pick out Race as the probable winner. He says, Yeah, this seemed weird. Uh, I mean, everybody else, from the fans to wrestlers, had pretty much picked Flair. Um, and Dusty in this promo, it's not, you know, a, a, a heel 
promo, and I don't know if he was trying to say that he'll challenge whoever, but he kind of hopes it's race to get some type of revenge, but he, he sort of puts up race and acts like he thinks he's going to uh, be victorious. It was kind of odd. He says the folk hero cannot be denied, which is really right. stra- a strange thing, but I wonder if he was thinking here, uh, as the booker, that there's been a lot of people putting Flair over on the show, and somebody needed to maybe give some weight to the race case. Um, that's the only thing I could think of because it's really strange. Somebody needed a hype race basically to make him see to make this seem like less one-sided. Right. Um, anyway, <clears throat> we go from there into the dog and dog collar and chain match, um, which may or may not be for the U.S. title. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's uh, obviously Rowdy Roddy Piper versus Greg the Hammer Valentine. Um, I think the feud going into this match is that Valentine had injured Piper's ear um, with the with the bell with a ring bell, um, prefiguring Steamboat Savage by a number of years. Um, and I think Bob Coddle did his most effective bit of commentary here. He really talks in detail about this chain and the danger of this match. Um, and I guess this is the sort of big picture stuff that Bob Coddle is famous for. Um, you know, just getting over the idea of danger um, and how the chain, you know, is is a lethal weapon. Yeah, Coddle, Coddle can, in some matches, do a really good job of uh, gaining the psychology of the match and... Sort of that. That's something I've seen in the Smoky Mountain wrestling that I've watched, and uh, this this was fabulous, and he did a fabulous job here. And this is also the match that I think slowly starts getting more into his comfort zone here, because um, his commentary from pretty much here onwards um, is a lot more comfortable, a lot more kind of fluid, um, and he seems like more emotionally invested in this. So, yes. like he says that Piper kind of saved him from some potential attack before, so he's like unabashedly supporting Piper for that personal in, uh, reason. Um, and he's particularly worried about how his physical condition, how injured he is. And they keep on talking about his equilibrium and his balance <laughs> throughout the match. Um, right. And uh, they really talk about this match. Soli says, uh, Piper scores the first psychological victory by whipping Valentine with a, with a chain. Um and they got this over as not only a brutal battle, but a psychological one as well throughout. And I think it's basically a Rocky story, right, where injured Piper uh, takes a real beating out from Valentine, but Valentine can't put him away, which is pretty good uh, Pretty good psychology in this match. Yeah, this was, this is, I mean, I don't, I don't know where this will rank uh, when the Death Valley driver does the Mid-Atlantic Crockett set, yeah. uh, but I, I can see it going really high because you have just great intensity. Uh, they use the stipulation of the doll collar really well with kind of a tug of war in the beginning and then some absolutely brutal shots oh, uh, yeah. where they wrap the chain around, uh, Valentine wrapped the chain around Piper's eyes, oh. Piper uh, wrapped it then around Valentine's mouth, was really clinching it. Um, yeah, and he, he this dub- is just one of the classic matches. He, he double wraps it around Valentine's face, so it's like not only around his mouth, but around the bridge of his nose. That looked really, yeah, that looked really it was painful. just nasty. Absolutely brutal. Um, 
and Valentine's just relentless in this match, going after Piper's ear. Um, and right. Piper's got like a really bloody ear, looks quite nasty, um, and Soli keeps on not only uh, talking about the, the psychology of the match and Piper's injury, keeps on talking about um, Crockett as a pioneer of a new era of pro wrestling. Um, and it's really from this moment on that there's a kind of narrative that emerges, like he tries to tell the story of um, wrestling entering into a new era. Um, and the booking actually starts looking pretty good um, from this match onwards for this uh, entire show, I'd say. Um, <clears throat> uh, Coddle mentions at some point that the crowd is stunned into silence by, by this match, by the sheer brutality of it. Um, and we get uh, like lots and lots of attack from Valentine. Um, and it goes back yeah, there's just tons of punches to his ear. Uh, at one point, they went outside and got thrown into some chairs and the ring post and whatnot. Um, it was just really good, and it didn't overstay its welcome, um, there's a really which I thought was nice, too. There's a really nasty uh, Piper kind of makes a comeback at one point, and he whips Valentine on the top of the head. Look really nasty. Yeah. Um, and then we have... Uh, I actually thought the ending was a little bit abrupt for me. It kind of like um, comes out of nowhere. Uh, Piper's on the second rope and um, Valentine, uh, sorry, Valentine's on the second uh, yeah. rope and Piper kind of, tr- you know, um, pulls the chain uh, and then does a, uh, and then he just goes for the pin and the, the match is over. So my only, obviously this is a great match, um, but my only kind of slight complaint is that. Um, the ending is just kind of a little bit out of nowhere. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, Piper kind of goes nuts, hits him a couple times with the chain, and then uh, one thing that I really liked was he scores the pin and he uses the chain to sort of wrap his yeah. legs. Yeah, that was really nice, actually. Which I thought was awesome. Um, yeah, great. It, it, was, it was a little... Uh, I didn't think it was as dramatic as, for instance, the ending to the uh, Magnum TA Tully Blanchard Cage I quit match, which yeah. I'm sure this match can be compared to a good bit, but uh, yeah, great match overall. And Soli actually caused this a US title win, and then must, somebody must have had a word in his ear because it, apparently the US title was not on the line. Okay. Uh, um, and then Soli starts calling it a moral victory. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, then we get, as with every other match of this night, we get a post-match beatdown. Valentine just attacks Piper some more, whips him, um, hits the ref away, and Soli kind of calls Piper a man five yards wide, which it must be an expression that you guys have, because I've never heard of that. Uh, I can't pin that one on me, because I can't say I've ever heard that one either. A man and five yards wide. And you really get the impression during this match that Piper is like Soli's favorite. He really yeah. likes Piper. Um, so, yeah, th- th- probably match of the night, would you say, this one? Yeah, oh yeah, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the other two matches, um, but this is clear, my favorite match of the night, it really felt kind of like a heavyweight boxing match, um, towards the end, where they were sort of slugging it out, uh, you know, really, you could feel the punishment that had been dished out and both guys 
looked exhausted, and uh, it was just, it was, it's an amazing match, it really is. Yeah, this is like Rocky Balboa going 15 rounds, you know, that's the yeah. kind of like, Valentine can't put Piper away, and he keeps on coming back, um, and there's a really nice transition late on when uh, they have a, uh, Valentine tries to suplex Piper, Piper gets the suplex, and I think from that moment, like, he really had momentum. Um, going into you know, like going into the finish, so I right. enjoyed that. Uh, <clears throat> so then we get uh, Shivani again with Flair again, <laughs> um, and Wahoo's there as well with a with his arm already in some sort of plaster, um, and just more kind of face Flair, you know, in that Minnesota style voice of his. Um, Wahoo says he'll bet all his money that Flair gets the win tonight. <laughs> Yeah, this was kind of a funny moment because uh, Bob actually said he he threw to Barbara, and then Tony started talking, which I found humorous. Um, but uh, this uh, interview is really when I started to think about Starcade nineteen ninety three, right. um, which they have all the flair. You know, it starts out at his house, and then we get the limousine ride over with him and Mean Gene, and kind of how this seemed like a template for them using that 10 years later. So I thought that was neat. Yeah, well, and Face Flair is a particular, like, he's like a family man. He really, like, gives, like, he really treating this match as a big deal, as, like, the great, most important moment of his life. And he really gets over the kind of gravity of uh, of the situation, like everything riding on this. Well, we're back in the dressing room with, and I'm sure I don't have to introduce these men, Nature Boy Ric Flair, former heavyweight champion, and, uh, of course, uh, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood here with us. Rick, I've been over in Harley's dressing room, Harley Race's dressing room. He's been talking to his friends, he says, and he, he says he has something prepared. And I was wondering what you think of that. Well, I hope that he is prepared for the match of a lifetime because <clears throat> myself, Rick Steamboat, Jay Youngblood, we sit here... We know that in a very few moments we're going to be climbing into that ring with all the marbles on the line. I've prepared myself as hard mentally and physically as I can prepare myself. I'm ready for anything, and I want to take this opportunity in front of all these wonderful people that supported us to wish Jay Youngblood and Rick Steamboat all the luck in the world. I know they've helped me. This is our night, and we're not going to let anybody down. Um, and then we go from that to Barbara. Uh, who's with Don Canodal, um, who gives the the lamest, um, most boring baby face. Uh, he just picks Flair as, as, as the winner here. Um, and uh, they do mention that Don Canodal was the uh, was the tag champ with Sergeant Slaughter. And they kept, they mentioned Slaughter a few times, and I, I had to wonder, he wasn't in Mid-Atlantic at this time. He must have either been with AWA or with Vince already, right? Yeah, I don't know where he was um, here, but yeah, I was kind of surprised that they mentioned him by name also. <clears throat> so we go from that into the tag, uh, into the tag titles. Um, Jack and Jerry Briscoe versus uh, Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. Um, the Briscoes, they had a stake in Georgia, famously, so they must have been on from the Georgia roster, not from the Mid-Atlantic roster. Is that right? And uh, they also Florida also they're mainly in Florida as well. Um, I think by this time as a tag team, that's where they were mostly featured. So, but, but like the titles can be um, yeah, defended on any of across the shows, I guess. 
Um, yeah, that, I think it's kind of like the world title where they would go every once in a while to different promotions to defend against the top team. So there's, there's a strange stipulation on this match where the titles can change hands in a DQ, um, which was an odd thing to, to mention, given that we don't get a DQ finish. Um, yeah, and it's not exactly a brawling-type match either, uh, which, I mean, you would think maybe they would do that because they would think the Briscoes, to kind of keep them under control, I know sometimes that stipulation is used, but... Uh, the Briscoes weren't exactly known as brawlers, so. The ref here was King Kong Angelo Mosca again in a PWI show. Um, yeah, he made he made it. <laughs> um, so there he is, and clear heels are the uh, are the Briscoes who get loudly booed when they're. Um, and Soli Soli hypes a couple of things here. He hypes uh, the amount of scholarships that the Briscoes had. Um, Jack Briscoe was a former NWA champ. It takes him a while to get that out, but he does mention it eventually. Um, and he just talks about their numerous qualifications and how much of background and all of this sort of thing. So Sully's in his element talking about the Briscoes, I get the impression. Um, and the Briscoes really work this as a classic um, kind of consummate heel tag team, quick tags in and out. Um, and they take the early control uh we get a trademark arm drag from a steamer at one point. Um, and there's a little bit of uh, intrigue going into this match. Coddle mentions that Briscoe said they didn't want to be a part of Starcade, but Crockett um, bought a contract for a match they'd signed in Kansas and moved it to Greensboro, which um, is not the most exciting angle, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, and then Soli says again, we're in a new era of pro wrestling. Um, and he mentions that both the Briscoes are southpaws, um, and we get an extended heel in peril segment uh, on Jerry Briscoe. As uh, what did you think? I, I actually was quite impressed by uh, by Jay Youngblood in this match. He came across as being, I mean, obviously Steamboat is the senior partner in this team, but he he, he held his own in this match. I thought. Yeah, I thought I thought he did good in the uh, when he was in the peril section. The beginning of this match I kinda was so so on. There was sort of a lot of kind of filling out process, arm bars, you know, steamboat coming off the top rope and then hooking on an arm bar. Uh sort of a lot of restarts. Um but once that steamboat and young blood started getting worked on by the Briscoes, I think the match picked up a good bit. Uh, there was one, I know in my notes I've talked about a weird pinning technique they were using with kind of a bridge. He'd yeah. have his arms around the waist and then would bridge up to roll his shoulders down, it's, which looked amateur wrestling-ish, and that was kind of weird. This is the position you end up in after a German suplex. Yeah, yeah, essentially that's what it was, where he just sort of hooked it on as a pinning combination. And then he also, uh, they did a very... Uh, interesting key lock submission that was um, hooked in tightly and the arms were wrapped around and Steamboat did a great job selling the hold and then ended up deadlifting him up um, in kind of a a back one power spot type move. I've just written here bizarre maneuver as Steamboat lifts from a submission and 
like that was a really strange. Uh, I've never seen that before. It was in- yeah. very interesting. Backlund, uh, Bob Backlund does that in uh, some of his um, matches where he'll be in a submission and lift him up as kind of a feat of strength. Uh, but I thought it looked really good there. When the Briscoes uh, gain control, Jack Briscoe does a couple of showcase moves, like he does a shotgun off the top rope. I think, did they call it a shotgun or a stun gun? I can't remember what they called it exactly. Uh, uh, then, then but it, that, that's essentially what it was. It was the stun gun. Yeah, that's what I wrote. Chin lock, back drop, double underhook suplex. Um, yeah, that was a nice underhook suplex too. Uh, he looks really good. Like he does a suplex on Youngbird a bit later, and uh, Jack Briscoe is real smooth. Like he's probably one of the better wrestlers we see on the show. Um, and Jerry kind of looks decent while he like he's obviously not as good as his brother, but um, he looked pretty good in everything he did in this match. Yeah, I think they definitely positioned Jerry as the weaker member of the team. Yeah. Um, but he he did a good job in this match, kind of mixing in tagging in and out and whatnot. And the match the match was good, I thought, overall. But I don't know. It the beginning, like I said, I really didn't like that much. Um the ending was kinda it it wasn't great either where you kinda have a little steamboat lifts young blood and sort of slams him down onto Briscoe to pin him. Especially uh, a gorilla press, isn't it? He does a gorilla press. Yeah, he kind of does like a gorilla press uh, to throw him down, and I I wasn't crazy about that either. So, well, I thought the match was good. I didn't think it was great or a classic or anything. There's a couple of interesting. Like we get a lateral guillotine at one point. Um, so I think the Briscoes bust out some of these um, amateur moves that we don't really see very often. Um, right. And then when Steamboat gets the hot tag, they do a lot of kind of baby face style double teaming, of double double flying chop, double. Um, they do this fun little thing where Steamboat picks up Youngblood and they 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 uh, they get a kick off an Irish whip, and then the finish, like you mentioned. Um, yeah, it was it was all right this match. I thought it wasn't like great or anything, but I think it showed us what both teams could do. Um, and then so like. After the title switch, Sodi keeps on hyping now. This is a new era of pro wrestling. <laughs> um, I think that's basically the narrative of the night, that there's a big kind of passing over of the torch from the old 70s guys to the um, you know younger generation. Um, there's a little bit of post-match, as every other match. Um, the Briscoes <laughs> try to do a beatdown. Uh, they put figure four on Steamboat. And Angelo Mosca comes in and blocks the double team, and then the um, Young Blood and Steamboat get to get to celebrate in the ring, and they really make this seem like a massive win here. They put it over um, as being a huge deal, this title win. Um, and I, I, the note I put here is that the Briscoes put put this team over huge uh, on this kind of big stage. You know, obviously they were reputable guys, and to put them over clean right in the middle. Pretty uh, pretty big win. Yeah, I thought I thought they did a good job of uh, putting them over. One thing that I wrote down was they they did have a really good uh, celebration at the end, but then inexplicably the credits 
started running. Oh yeah, this was really weird. This <laughs> <laughs> is very bizarre. So, where we get pretty much solely runs down everybody from the producer, you know, Jim Crockett, on down to essentially the guy that was giving them water. And uh, we got cameramen, pretty much the rundown of everybody that worked on this show. Our technical director, Emerson Lawson, and uh, in charge of uh, all of the good folks here handling our uh, cameras and our video uh, uh, director now, Pete Brown. Another man that I can't speak too highly of. All of these people are the people behind the microphones, behind the scenes. And audio in charge of audio is Howard Hara Caldwell. On videotape is Wayne Daniel. He's brought us the slow-mos tonight, the instant replays, and uh, certainly is doing a magnificent job. This was really tiresome as a time kill. I mean, why did he have to go through the credits? Um, and he just does it totally straight-laced without, you know, as if this was a natural thing to do. <laughs> yeah, this it was really bizarre. While, while, and all this is happening while Youngblood and Steamboat continue to celebrate, which sort of, I mean, yeah. I don't know if this was, they had done a good job of hyping the main event, but it almost looked like this was the end of the show. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of thought that um, one of the things that finished uh, lacked, one of the things that that match lacked was, was a David Crockett figure to go crazy. Um, so even though Soli and Coddle were reasonably excited here, they still didn't really go beyond their usual kind of selves. They didn't get excited or anything. Um, yeah, even well in the next match, the main event too, even the finish of that match, I did not think they got, you know, an exceptionally excited for what, you know, in their own words, is the new beginning of wrestling or whatnot. Um, yeah, so a, a loon like David Crockett would have helped sell this a bit more. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so anyway, this is the after this uh, after these really weird credits um, that, that Soli gives us, where he he doesn't just like he names every single cameraman by name. Like he goes. <laughs> <laughs> um, for the last time, we go into Flair's uh, locker room, um, and Tony uh, Tony is with Charlie Brown, who gives a really high energy hype promo. One of uh, probably one of the better pro like one of the better kind of high energy promos of the night. Um, and then Piper comes in, says, "You got one more ear to go, Valentine," <laughs> um, and he's pretty psyched about his win. And then Steamboat and Youngblood. Uh, the face locker room is pretty happy at this time because all the faces have gone over tonight. Um, they're three for one on the big matches. Only Orton and Slater got heel wins. Yeah, I mean, the the first half of the show was dominated by the heels winning. Um, uh, kind of then, you know, I guess the most of the face teams were enhancement, but yeah, in the big matches, the baby faces all go over. Um, so. Steamboat and Youngblood, uh, five times champs now. They they mention, which is a record. And uh, I thought Jay uh, Jay Youngblood was surprisingly decent on the mic. And Steamboat talks about how um, they may not be the biggest or the strongest, but they adopt different styles. They they adapt different styles to different opponents, which makes gives them an edge, which is an interesting yeah. thing to say. Um, and I mean, looking at this kind of as a inverted commas smart fan, um, the, the fact that three big baby face wins uh, going into this may, may suggest the race may be going over. 
that race may be winning this. Um, you know, if you just think about the booking pattern, usually if um, if the main event ends with a heel win, they give a lot of babyface wins uh, on the undercard, or vice versa. Um, so it was surprising that there's so many big babyface wins here. Right. Uh, the only thing that suggests that it's going to be Flair is the fact that Orton and Slater won their match. Um, and, you know, that would have been strange. <clears throat> so it's time for the big event. Flair's music, uh, the arena goes black and we get Flair's, uh, Flair's music. I was, this music was for Flair, right? It wasn't just music for the match itself. Because it was a pretty big moment. Yeah, this, this whole entrance really, I thought was amazing. Um, and sort of, I mean, it felt big time where the music starts, we get some fog, some kind of spotlights, uh, a little pyro of all things. <laughs> and then, you know, Flair just kind of emerging with a robe and, uh, and then he walks down the aisle and I always love that the one girl gives him a kiss on the cheek as he, uh, makes his way down. And this really felt like a, a big time person entering the arena. And I thought this was wonderful. Yeah, no. Uh, Gene Knitsky is the former uh, former champ. He's the referee here, and uh, we have some interesting um, commentary here by Soli. And I actually thought that Soli did a really good job on this last match because he he talks about intensity and execution, about of uh, intensity and execution are the most important things uh, in this match. And the man who's the most intense, the man who's who executes the best, is going to win this match. Um, and then he starts going on about uh, how race began wrestling at 17. Uh, Flair has a more amateur background, coming from the University of Minnesota, and the name on the marquee is wrestling. And this all seems really big time now, after that wonderful uh, introduction. Um, the only thing I did uh, think here is that race seemed like... <sighs> coming into the match, race looked like a man who thought he may be losing here. Did you did you get a sense of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in contrast to Flair, who has this great entrance with you know everything going on, Race, the champion, he just sort of appears out of nowhere, kind of wanders down the aisle. Um, he has his his robe on, which is a robe that he wears, but to me, it always looks like a bathrobe. So I've never liked. Uh, his robe with the race on it, and he sort of—I mean, the the—he definitely was playing his persona as kind of a low-key type figure. Uh, but just you know, being the champion, it did seem kind of anticlimactic after we just got all this with Flair. He he just seemed to be a little bit sheepish, I guess. Like compared, to, yeah. Like it, it he—it's not like he gave the impression that he was up for this and ready for it. He seemed. A little bit scared, I guess, going in. Right. Um, and I, I don't know if... what The thing I couldn't work out was, was that just race being race, or was that race intentionally trying to give off that impression? Because... Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, race is somebody that... And in this match, he throws out a ton of moves that yeah. you just don't see. I mean, we got pile drivers, we got swinging neck breaker, power slam, kind of a power slam shoulder breaker type thing. Yeah. Uh, uses a lot of head butts. 
so Race was somebody that really did do a ton of moves for this era. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, th- I think this was more, from what I've seen of him, this was more kind of his usual persona. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm thinking more about like his general demeanor, like the look on his face and how he was. Yeah, behaving, it like... did look a little defeated. I don't know if he was, you know, legit pissed at dropping the title, mm-hmm. or if he wanted to do a more subdued facial expressions or kind of what the deal was there. So, so, so he keep, keeps this narrative of intensity and execution going right through the match, and he, he notes like twice now races failed to execute. Um, and they they basically coddle and solely speculate about race being off his game tonight. But he's not quite like he's not quite hitting. He's not quite flying on all cylinders for the first half of this match. Um, and I guess he, as the match goes on, he gains more and more control. Um, and then they put it down to race's experience, uh, which is kind of the story of the match, I guess. Where um, there's some really good counter wrestling in in the first half of the match. Uh, from Flair, and then we get um, Race starts using the cage more and more in his offense, and Flair, Flair's mark, Flair's face becomes very, very bloody, like yeah. absolutely covered. And I, I just thought I'd mention that the ring is absolutely covered in blood from the previous matches of the night. I mean, there's a yeah. Lot, there's a when lot. they did that shot from the ceiling, you could really see it. All the blood that was on the canvas. Yeah, and I, I've got it written here in massive capital letters. Great overhead shot, and you can see all yeah. the blood from all the different matches. This is a very bloody event in general um, compared to what we're used to seeing. There's a lot of blood on this show. Um, right. I, I, I sort of had a problem. Um, I had two main problems with this match. Um, one, which we'll probably talk about in a little bit towards the end, is... Kanitsky yeah. and oh, yeah. and and two is I I didn't really think they used the cage very well and I don't know if they were trying to kind of go for a sort of a technical wrestling masterpiece type match with the cage just being I mean I understand the cage was there because Race had the bounty on yeah. Flair's head Slater interfering, basically. Yeah, right. So that that's fine, but I would have loved them. I mean, I I wrote in my notes that Race uses the cage for the first time around ten minutes in, so we were almost halfway through this match, and even throughout the match, they they mixed the cage in more in the later half of the match. But there was a lot of kind of wrestling, and I, I don't know, it just didn't really fit for me uh, as like what I kind of expect from a cage match, blow-off type match to a feud. A, a lot of Flair's offense is very, like, he does a butterfly suplex, he does a pile driver. Um, there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of technical wrestling here. Um, you're right. that It's not, it, it doesn't feel like a heated, uh, it's, it's nothing like a kind of um, blood feud match like the Piper Valentine. Yeah, area. I mean, that's one thing that I really noticed. I mean, Gordon does use this motif of intensity and execution, but, I mean, the intensity in this match was clearly not as uh, high as it was in the Piper Valentine match. So, I mean, the execution, I think, did play a big role in what happened, but 
the intensity was lacking. Yeah, I, I mean, I was, I, I can't make my mind up about race because, um, like over the old All Japan set, I, I was with one person who kind of ragged on uh, Tenryu, basically from eighty to eighty-seven, but always come across like he just doesn't give a shit. Like his face never changes. He never looks like he cares. It never looks like it's a big, you know, emotional affair. And race in this match was pretty cold. Like he's kind of doesn't. It doesn't seem like the biggest match of his life. I, I know he has that kind of look of um, look of defeat going in, but as the match progresses, there's ne- there's not really any real hatred there, which would be the kind of big problem I have with this match. That it doesn't seem heated enough. Uh, right from his point, from his point of view, from from race, because um, you know Flair is Flair. He's always going to give you a you know even as babyface, he's going to give you the you know he's going to give you a Flair performance. Um, but but race for me, he he's a bit of a cold fish, um, almost yeah. kind of not kind of, not not quite Dory Funk Junior levels, but it's getting towards it. Yeah, yeah, he was very kind of stoic. Um, here, um, um, I thought Flair, when he did his comeback at the end, was really good. Strutting around, he yelled out a woo at one time, uh, which I really enjoyed. But yeah, I agree. I would not, definitely not tout this as uh, like a signature performance by race or anything. And then uh, we get a big celebration, obviously, and um, there's no um, race still wants to fight, but there's no post-match beatdown, thankfully, for this. Um, right. And you know, Flair gets his moment in the sun um, in front of uh, in front of his home crowd, and there's a ton of interviews and kind of analysis now, um, and there's a big narrative from Coddle and from Soli about maybe this being Race's big, you know, this is basically like Race's big last mo- uh, yeah. last run here. He's done uh, as a kind of main event title holding draw. Which is in- interesting because Race gives a gives a promo where he says he's not giving up. You know, he's still he's not throwing the towel in here, and he's he's probably one of the best lines of the night. This night was arranged for you, Ric Flair. Right. And, uh, there was that feeling. You know, he got that massive entrance, home hometown. The show is called Starcade Flair for the Gold. So it's almost like the night was cu- custom built for him. Harley, I'm sorry. And what can I say, Barbara, other than I did it seven times? There's not a thing on a face of God's green earth that stands in my way of doing it eight times, other than the light of the dusty roads and the ultimate Ric Flair and a few people in that category. I've been there. I've done it all. Flair, this is your night of glory. The night that was arranged for you. Please, please believe me when I tell you this. That I'm not packing it up and going away and hide. I'm going to hound you like you've never been hounded before in your life. You drove me absolutely insane for six months. I'll guarantee you that you'll live through hell until you meet me again. 
Yeah, you definitely felt a changing of the guard type uh, narrative from this match. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask you is what you thought about Kaniski in this match. Because I, as, as much as the cage thing bothered me, um, I could sort of look past that. Because I could say they were reaching for, like I said, a more technical style uh, match mixing in the cage. Yeah. But I thought Kanitsky was just absolutely awful as the referee. And I don't know if you've seen the uh, Flair, Kerry Von Eric Star Wars cage match no, with Michael that. Hayes. Have you seen that match no, I before? Seen that one yet, no. Okay, well, and then that match, Michael Hayes is the referee, and that sort of is what starts the Von Erich's Freebirds feud, and he sort of does a lot of the same things Kanitsky does here, where he pulls, you know, the competitors off from each other, and it's, it's sort of annoying, and then at the end, snaps. And that actually works, because that starts one of the best feuds in, you know, the territory history. Here, it just seemed like Kanitsky was just being a dick. He didn't yeah. understand you know, what what type of match it was in. It seemed stupid. He blocked, you know, flares a couple of times on when he went on offense. Yeah. And then the ending, I assume race is supposed to trip over him, which I don't know why they couldn't just go with a straight, clean finish. Yeah. Uh, but it, it looked terrible where he barely kind of slipped over Kaninsky and I don't know if anything resulted from this, whether they were planning on having a big Kanitsky comeback feud versus race, which seems odd given Kanitsky's age, but I, I just thought he was absolutely awful. He had no place in this match. Uh, he got in the way a lot. Um, I felt like he was just an unwanted presence, basically. Um, I mean, when was he? He was NWA champ like before Dory Funk Jr., right? So, oh yeah, I mean we're yeah. we're talking late sixties, real early seventies when he was in his heyday. So there's just no need to have a guest ref here. Like there's he doesn't need to be in this match at all. Um, yeah, and like surely they weren't planning for a comeback or an angle involving him, and he just seemed like he was trying to maybe get himself over a little bit. Yeah, I don't I don't know. That's and that that was one thing. Like I don't know. Whether, I mean, it seemed sort of towards the end that pretty much Flair and Race both just sort of said the hell with you and sort of ignored him, um, which I kind of would have liked to see Soli do, but Soli kept, you know, even in the closing minutes of the match when he was clearly hurting the flow and dragging him away, slowly kept touting up how he was doing this fabulous job, and it was just, it really affected my enjoyment overall. For me, this is not a great match anyway. Uh, let's let's just say if Kanitsky wasn't in it for a second, let's just say none of that stuff happened. At most, I'd be giving it like a 3.5. Because for me, um, even though we get some cool offense from race, like the lack of emotion hurts things for me quite a lot, um, considering this is meant to be such a big deal for him. Um <laughs> With Kanitsky, with Kanitsky's involvement again, I may even dock it like a whole star, maybe half a star, something like that. If I, if we were giving star rate, ratings, so yeah, this is not like considering the rep of this match, considering how important it is, um, it's 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 a good but not great in my view. Yeah, this is a match I would definitely. Um, I, it'll be interesting to see if this goes on the Crockett 
80 set because it's it's so historically significant. I can see some people defending it if they really uh, sort of ignore Kanitsky and say he was just trying to enforce the rules and they did get uh, dig the psychology of the sort of the wrestling mixed in with the cage, but it, it just really did not hit its mark uh, for me. I mean, it felt like a big moment at the end, but to me, the entrance and the ending with, you know, that iconic image of Flair with his head looking down with the blood, uh, getting his hand raised, that's a lot better than the actual match that we saw. Absolutely. And I, I mean, if this would, Say if this match had been on the uh, All Japan set, it would have been like 120 plus on that. Oh so yeah, oh yeah. I, I would, I would even say it'd probably be uh, close to bottom ten for me. Yeah. Um. There was a like kind of general narrative for the whole night of the passing of the torch, and like this is kind of the cherry on the cake. But the whole idea that we're moving from the late 70s, early 80s era into a new, into kind of a new bunch of characters, a new. Um, era for Crockett and for wrestling in general um, and I thought Soli was pretty good at putting that over in general like yeah, over, the, over, the course of the, over the course of the evening um, but I, just before we finish here I'd like to have a little talk about Soli and about Coddle um, for me an answer is probably there to get over to get over narrative, to get over angles um, to get over the guys and for me, Soli basically method acts wrestling and treats it like a legit sport. Um, so there are little things that I'd imagine, um, you know, uh, a Shivani wouldn't do, for example. Like, Shivani wouldn't have kept on going on about Kanitsky during the match, as you mentioned. But Soli, because his whole deal is being, you know, he, he calls wrestling like a legit sport, he couldn't ignore it because that's what a, that's what somebody, you know, that's what a legit sports announcer would do. Um, and I'm kind of like I know he's got a reputation as being greatest of all time, but for me, um, on this showing, whenever I've heard Soli, um, I'm not feeling it. He just feels like it's just not something that I'd look for in an answer. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought Soli here at times, uh, like I like I said in the beginning, I thought he seemed sort of disorganized or unfamiliar. Um, and the final matches, I thought, like in the Piper Valentine match, he did a good job. But in the main event, he kept going back to these narratives that, you know, I really, I always sort of like an announcer to kind of be what the viewer is thinking. Yeah. And I just think any objective viewer would be like, I'm pissed off at what Kanitsky keeps doing. Yeah. Whereas Soli sort of, you know, he did treat it like a standard news or sports broadcast where he just sort of called the action, uh, you know, didn't even question any actions going on besides stuff that was explicitly explained to him. And uh, so I, I didn't really connect with that at all. I actually thought this show would have been stronger, bizarrely, if the team had been Coddle and David Crockett. There needed to be somebody there to get over the emotion. To get, you need a color man, basically. Um, and I don't like. There were times when Soli, obviously for this match, for example, he had a thesis, right? He had a thesis that he worked out that was all about intensity, all about execution, and he just kept on pushing his own thesis, like throughout the match. Right. 
Right. Even though race clearly lacked in any sort of intensity for the entire evening. So it's like there was a kind of disconnect between what he was saying and what was actually happening, um, which is a little bit distracting for me. So, yeah, maybe we should go through uh, who we thought, you know, uh, match of the night for me was was uh, probably the uh, Piper Valentine by some distance. Yeah, I, I got Piper Valentine as my favorite match of the night. I would actually say the Orton Slater uh, Wahoo Youngblood tag match would probably be my second oh, easily, favorite yeah. match of the night. Easily. Yeah. And I did like the Briscoe. Uh, the Briscoe. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a good match. Just not. I know on the reviews I've seen for this show, as far as Scott Keith and whatnot. I mean, okay. it was hovering around four stars, and right. I certainly didn't think it was at that level. No, but it, good it, match. I, I mean, if I was going to give star ratings here, um, I would give it about three. That match, yeah. maybe. Yeah, that, um, that sounds fair. I would rank it ahead of the Flair race. I really am not a fan of. Uh, I really don't think that match is all it's correct. Like, you know, some people would say that's a five star classic or an all time, you know, an all time match. Obviously, it's historically important, but. Yeah, I would think that's just nostalgia, mostly uh, kind of clouding the actual match. Uh, how about an M? And uh, what do what do you guys call it? MVP, man of the match. Yeah, most valuable player. Um, I would say I don't know. I would say Valentine. I thought this was one of his best matches I've ever seen him in. Uh, he's somebody I've been pretty indifferent on throughout most of the work I've seen of him. But I thought he did a great job, really attacking Piper looking more intense than he usually does. Um, he kind of, I think, can fall into sort of what you was talking about with race, where he sometimes doesn't look like he really cares. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I thought he really turned in a great performance in his match. Yeah, and um, if I was going to go for it, probably, I mean, Piper was pretty good in that match as well, you know. Oh, yeah, Piper was great, which I expect. I, I was thinking Valentine was just more of a surprise. Um, if I was going to, um, I might do something controversial and say that the MPV, uh, MVP for me is probably Bob Orton. <laughs> I thought he was really good in that match. Oh yeah, he was. Absolutely. Um, and I, like, I thought he was just, uh, like, you know, probably the best kind of like dick heel performance of the night was from him as well. Like he, he seemed like, you know, those guys seemed like proper, proper heels. Um, and, and obviously like I'm used to a much more character driven product. Um, from from the WWF and even from late, you know later on in the, in Crockett, so it was nice to have a bit of bit of character in there um, in this environment where you know all the baby faces are kind of just like boring guys who just want to win or dancing idiots. Like basically, you've only got two types of baby faces at this time, right? You've got Steamboat, straight laced kind of goody two shoes, or you've got you know Jimmy Valiant, dancing idiot. That's all you've got, you know. You've got your dusty, or you've got your steamboat. Um, so yeah, it was nice to it was nice to have a bit of character. All right. How about um, kind of worst person on the night? Uh, there's probably some stiff competition on that. Um, I would probably lean towards Kabuki, uh, just because, like I said, with what I've watched in all Japan. Uh, from the late 80s, early 90s, I know he can be a real effective worker, 
and here he just brought nothing to the table um, yeah, in I, his match. I I'm, I would also go for uh, Kabuki just because that doing that awful claw move for about ten minutes is un, unforgivable. But anybody yeah. who does that is going to be worse on the night. Um, but also, um, Kanitsky's got to be in the conversation now as well. Oh, oh yeah, well, yeah. Overall performance, Kanitsky. I mean, he he really did. Like, I agree with you that if he would never existed in that match, it wouldn't be a great match. But it, it was really one of the most frustrating matches I've watched in quite some time. Where you know, repeatedly, I kept saying, "Why doesn't he just stop and let these guys, you know, do their thing?" Absolutely. So, so, so just wrapping up here, um, I mean, it, it was interesting to go through this show, and I think um, the, the next show will be uh, Starcade 84, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how that older generation of kind of 70s guys uh, gradually fade out, and we're going to see more and more kind of new guys debuting uh, on these shows, and that transition is going to be, I mean, it's already started to happen in quite a big way on this show. Um, but I'm guessing next time there's going to be, you know, a lot less of your, uh, you know, Rufus R. Jones type characters uh, on the on the card. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to seeing how that develops. Uh, and I guess the plan here is for us to, I mean, eventually we'll end up in Greed 2001, right? Yeah, we'll go all the way up till when it closes. Um, take yeah. the long journey together. Yep, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it, and maybe we'll make a couple of stop-offs uh, in the NW, uh, in the AWA uh, as we're doing it. But, um, well, th- thank you very much for that. We'll uh, look forward to working with you further. All right, thank you. Bye. All right, thank you very much, Chad. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody. <laughs>